Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new teaching series, the Book of Philippians, we'll explore the lessons we can learn from the Book of Philippians related around joy in the midst of suffering. Let's turn now to part two of the series, Life or Death versus Life in Death. Well, you know, I, I'm in this series on joy, and I told you last week that I really I felt like I should do a, a, a couple jokes as I came up and did this, and I didn't do them last week. And so I planned for jokes this week, and then Chris decided to throw his drumstick down the steps in the middle. So I don't know if anybody else caught that. Uh, Chris, did you want somebody to take this? Is that, he, I'm off camera. I'm sorry, y'all, for those who can't see me. But you just, right in the middle of everything, Chris just decides to launch his drumstick. So I'll, I'll keep this for you somewhere up here. Uh, but I, did, I have some great jokes here. I mean, everybody's got to have a few jokes. But I felt like I couldn't do a series with jokes unless I did some of my favorite dad jokes. Uh, so y'all get ready to groan just a little bit, uh, but we're going to tell some dad jokes, because did I hear groaning back there? I did already. <laughs> you know a good dad joke. At least I got one who'll say amen. I got my amen corner back up here. You know, so I was talking the other day with my wife uh, about the end of the year, because it seems like it's going really fast, doesn't it? You know, we were just looking at the calendar, and I said, I really am afraid of the calendar. She's like, why are you afraid for the calendar? I was like, because its days are numbered. It just seems like it's day. Oh, that was good. That was good. You got it, right? She's like, you really need to stop this. This is not good. Go do some exercise or something. Do a couple lunges. I was like, well, I would, but that would be a big step forward for me to do that. That's just too much for me to do. And at that point, she's like, get out of the house, right? Don't, don't even be here. Just, just go golfing or do something. And so I did. I was I was going to head out, I decided to go golfing, and I grabbed an extra pair of socks before I went. She's like, what, what would you do that for? Why are you going to get an extra pair of socks? I was like, in case I get a hole-in-one, of course. Like, why else would you do that? That just makes perfect sense. And so I did. I went out to the golf course, and I'm kind of batting around, and uh, um, the guy I was with, he got a tick on his shoulder. I was like, hey, you got a tick. And, and he didn't freak out like my wife would, but I was like, you know what, you know what uh, the, the similarity is between a tick and the Eiffel Tower? No? You don't know? They're both parasites, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one took just a minute to get to. Uh, and then finally I was done. I came home and I was like, honey, I'm sorry. I had, I had a bad day. We were thinking about the calendar. I was like, but I really, you know, as I think about next year and looking forward, I, I was stunned by something. You know, we always say if April showers bring May flowers, the question that I have is, well, what, what do May flowers bring, right? And I really, really thought, Pilgrims, we got it! That's, that's the best. If we could just turn this around. So, you know, I, I promise that was it for me. That was, I have one more. I, I'm not going to share it. I'm, I'm done. I'm just going to stop right there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Right? I've tortured you all for this morning with those dad jokes. That was that was <laughs> now, now, if you weren't in a season of suffering, now you are, right? That's the beauty of a dad joke, is, is they can like, put us into this space of finding joy in the midst of suffering in a very, very beautiful way. It doesn't matter what setting you are in life. Uh, we all, and I think this is really, really true, in the world we live in, we need a little space to laugh some more, don't we? We just need to find things to laugh at and to be a part of. The world that we're living in, 
And, and I see this a lot. In fact, I, I'll tell you a story just a minute about our parish uh, ministers in this regard. The world we're living in is a life and death world. Everything is a matter of life and death. I told you last week when we get together in the past, we used to ask how the weather is. Now we get together and we ask, you know, who's in the hospital or what funeral we went to. And that's the truth. Every conversation I have, small talk is built in around a matter of life and death. And when everything in our life is life or death, everything is important. Everything has a certain weight to it that starts to settle in our lives and show up all the time because in a very real sense, our future depends on it, right? We want to be more serious. We want to take life more seriously. We want to be calculated in our moves and how we operate in the world because our future depends on it. My kid's future depends on it. My future depends on it. And in the world that we're living in where everything seems a little bit more urgent, it also seems a little bit heavy and not quite as light or funny. Right? I told you that I was chatting with our, our parish pastors the other day, and I said, I said, how many funerals have you all done in the past year since the pandemic started? And there are four of us in the parish, four pastors. And since the pandemic began, I added them all up. One of them had done 11, one had done 10, one had done five. And after yesterday, I've done nine. We've done a total of 35 funerals since the pandemic began. Our world has been cycling around life and death. And just to give you perspective on my reality, before the pandemic, I averaged three funerals a year. That was where I was. I've now done nine since this began. And that's the type of world we live in where everything feels more urgent and we want to stay focused on the future. And trust me, I'm, a, I'm about as strategic as they come. I like to be future-oriented. I like to think big picture. I want to live in that realm and think about what the future can hold and how I can best manage it and control it and survive. I want to live the next 10, 20 years, and I want to kind of know where I'm going to be in the next 10 or 20 years. I've got all that in my head, and I'm working in that. And in this environment, there's a part of that that's okay. There's a part of that strategic thinking that's okay. But if we let it go too far, when our dreams become our demands, that's when we can become like demigods. Right? We start to take everything into our own control. And there's no room for God to control anything. We trust the future ourselves, and there's no longer any trust in what God might want to do in that future. There's no space to trust our creator to control our lives and direct our lives. And what ends up happening when I become the creator of all things, when I become the one who demands what happens in the future, my world shrinks. It gets smaller and smaller around me. My perspective becomes narrower and narrower. And then I start to realize that I'm living in a prison of my own making. That's the world that I'm in, and I feel the entrapment around me. I feel that prison around me, and everyone, every one of us has probably had moments like this in our lives. We've had a vision of what our career would be, and then it takes kind of a sharp turn right. Something shifts, we lose control, and there goes our joy on the other side of it. We had a vision of what our family would look like, and that doesn't turn a pan out that way, and we feel like we're out of control. My wife and I had this experience in our own lives where we thought that we would have a family at a certain point in our life, and then turns out I'm 34 years old, and that's when I decided to have a son, right? I did not anticipate that, and I did not anticipate at 40 years, of old, uh, years old having a daughter, and I don't think you should do that. Let me just say, that is not something you should ever anticipate. We have these visions of what our future should be, and then things start to change, and when that starts to change in our lives, our joy can be zapped. Every one of us has these moments where our joy just fades away because our plans don't go as they ought to. 
And this is the life or death culture that we live in, where our joy gets easily zapped, everything becomes serious, everything becomes heavy, and our perspective begins to shrink as death occurs all around us. Death of all sorts. And you know, as I think back about the book of Philippians, when Paul sat down to write this letter, he's not just living in a life or death culture. Paul is living in a life or death situation. Like This is his reality. He is literally in a moment where he doesn't know if he is going to get out of prison alive, if he is going to see tomorrow. And to compound the problem, he's struggling both internally and externally with that reality. He's got a group of people on the outside of prison who wish him dead. And they're doing everything they can on the outside to fight against him. You see, the Philippian church existed in a culture, it's a little bit different than ours, but it was a shame culture. And in the context of a shame culture, if something bad happens to you, I'm going to shame you for that because you probably deserve whatever bad is happening, right? Either, the God, or either God or the gods have done this to you and they've leveled this punishment on you and there's something wrong with you. And so I'm going to shun you and shame you in the context of that culture. And this is what Paul is wrestling with because now he's in prison and on the outside there's a society around him that's saying he must have something wrong with him. And so there are certain ministers in that area, certain leaders of the church, who actively start fighting against him and start preaching that Paul has done something wrong and that there's something wrong with the gospel that he's, he's sort of offered. And in the context of that, Paul now has to wrestle not only with his own imprisonment, but he has to wrestle with his reputation on the other side of prison. Even if I get out of this prison, Paul's got to have in his head... What's life going to be like? Am I ever going to regain the status that I had? Am I ever going to be able to minister the gospel in the way that I did in the past? And, you know, in this environment, this is the internal and external reality he's living with. Will I live or die? And if I do live, will I be able to continue on in the way that I have in the past? If there's ever a life or death moment for Paul, now is that time. He could physically die. His reputation could die. His reality could die. His good name could die. All of this could die. And he wants to let you know that right up front. At the very beginning of his letter, where we are today in Philippians chapter 1 that Hayden read to us just a few moments ago, this is what he wants to address. He addresses the looming death that's all around him. And in verse 16 and 17, we see that some have proclaimed Paul or proclaimed Christ out of envy of Paul. And others have proclaimed Christ out of defense of Paul. And he's got both of these, these groups sort of proclaiming Christ around him. And then in verse 18, Paul begins to offer a new perspective with a single question. Here's how he opens up that verse. After saying that you got some who are proclaiming out of envy and you got some who are proclaiming uh, in defense, here's what he says. What does it matter? That's a single question. What, what does it matter? What does it matter if some proclaim out of envy and others proclaim in defense? What's the result? What's the consequence of them offering this proclamation? Now let me pause just for a minute right here and talk about our natural response in, in moments of life or death. You see, what many of us would do in this context, asking this question, what does it matter if someone's proclaiming something out of envy of me or if someone's standing up in defense of me, many of us would focus on ourselves in this moment. Right? There's a natural inclination amongst human beings to preserve our life, particularly in life or death scenarios, right? If we're in a life or death scenario and a bear is chasing me, you better hope that, I can, that you can run faster than me. Right? That's, that's reality, because in those moments, I'm focused on preservation of my life. And so there's something natural when it comes to the preservation of our life and life and death moments where I'm going to focus on myself. I'm going to, when I feel the attack, when I feel the offensive, I'm going to turn inward for that moment. 
When my vision of the future gets rocked, I'm going to move into a defensive posture and see if I can defend that future and defend that as I go forward. This, this life or death scenario causes us to focus on our life and our death. Where do I fit into this? And what do I need to do in order to preserve my life and my death? And that's natural. Self-preservation is probably our number one goal in moments like this. It's not going to be my death. Maybe yours. I'm sorry for that. But it won't be mine right now. Because I'm going to do everything to protect it. And Paul felt that tension. Let's not, let's not suggest he didn't. Paul felt the tension that every human being did. His entire ministry is in question right now. His reputation, effectiveness, all of those things are being questioned right now. His life is on the chopping block, and he has every right in the middle of this to defend his name and to do whatever he can in front of the Philippians to defend his name. But in the middle of that, he remembers a faith that called him in a different direction. In the middle of that, he remembers something that Jesus said to his disciples when he was calling them to follow him. Something he said and that Matthew wrote down in his gospel in the 16th chapter where Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, what should he do? He should take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. If anyone would want to come and follow me, you should deny yourself, you should take up your cross, you should follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose his life, but whoever loses it for my sake will find it. So what really matters in moments of life or death, Paul continues in this way, what does it matter? Well, just this, this one thing, that Christ is proclaimed. That's what matters. In the context of this life or death moment, I could preserve my life, I could protect my name, I could do all those things, but Paul says, no, what matters in this moment is that Christ is proclaimed in every single way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Here's that joy he starts to bring in. I'm going to rejoice in that moment. He rejoices in the middle of this darkness, in this dark place. He finds joy. He discovers the fullness of this joy. I love the way Eugene Peterson actually uh, translates this particular passage. He says it this way. He says, I decided that I really don't care about their motives, right? Just beautiful the way he writes this out. I don't care about their motives. They could be good. They could be mixed. They could be in bad or indifferent. I don't care. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed. And so I just cheer them on. I'm just glad they're proclaiming Christ. I'm just glad that the message is going forward. I've got that joy inside of me. So they can do whatever it is they want to do on the outside. But as they're doing it, Christ is proclaimed, and that is fantastic news. That's amazing. And this shift in perspective creates the room for Paul to have some joy in his life. And of course, Paul's joy doesn't end there. We see it in the very next verse. He goes on. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. I'll continue to have joy spill over, for I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Holy Spirit uh, of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, let me pause here one more time, because we could assume in that case that Paul's saying, well, I'll be delivered out of prison, right? I'll get out of this. My name will be, my, my name will be protected, all of that. And, and that's the question that comes up. Well, what are, what are you being delivered from, Paul? What's the deliverance that you're speaking of? Is it death? Is it prison? Is it shame? What will you be delivered from? I'm you know, and, and I'm sure in, in all of this, the people who were reading this originally probably thought, well, it's vindication, right? It, surely Paul will be vindicated for everything, and if enough people hear the gospel, they'll know that Paul was right, and it'll be good. That's not what Paul was suggesting. It's not what he was saying at all. In fact, if you go on to verse 20, it says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way. I don't want to be put to shame, but that m through my continuing to speak with all boldness, Christ will be exalted 
now as always in my body, and here's, here's where we know he's not talking about his physical liberation, he says, whether by life or by death. The end result of me living or dying doesn't have any effect on my joy, and it doesn't have any effect on my deliverance. My deliverer lives, my deliverer reigns, my deliverer is active in this world, and no matter how my God chooses to deliver me, I will be delivered. Just as the three Hebrew boys who went into the fire would say the same thing decades, or centuries before, I will be delivered even if I don't come out on the other side of the fire. And Paul is suggesting a very similar thing here. If Christ is exalted, the entire paradigm of our life shifts. No longer is Paul concerned about life or death or what that might be because his joy is not grounded in an experience of abundance in this life. His joy is not protected when we protect the things around us. Our joy is not secured because our family is taken care of, our bills are paid, our health is good. Our joy is not grounded in all of those things. And Paul's imprisonment is not a life or death situation because Paul's life is not grounded there. It's not grounded here. Paul's discovered his life in Christ, in Christ alone. And when he found life in Christ, what he discovered is life in the middle of death. And the same is true for us. When we find our life in Christ, we can have life in death rather than life or death. We can have life in the midst of every circumstance that we face. And I don't believe in any way that this is just wishful thinking or preacher talk. Like, I don't, I don't think that's part of it. I'm not just putting a positive spin on the world around us. This is a complete change in how we understand our being in this world, how we live and act in this world. To gain the entire world, we have to lose it. To save it, we have to sacrifice it. But when we take this dramatic step in our lives, we discover that Christ is no longer a threat, or we find that death is no longer a threat in Christ because there is life in death with Christ. With Christ by our sides, we find that life and that hope. And therefore, this is the reason why Paul could say one of the craziest things in the entire New Testament just after this in verse 21. He says, for to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now, this is a very simple Greek structure that you see here in, here in uh, Philippians 1.21. In fact, it's, it's so simple, it's just a few words stacked up on top of each other. But what it probably it looks like to the, to the uh, Philippians is to live equals Christ, to die equals gain. Like, that's the simple scenario. Living is equated to Christ, dying equated to, to gain. Either way, it's a positive. Either way, it's a positive because he's grounded himself in an entirely different space. And because of this, it seems all the more necessary that he would encourage us. He goes on to spell out what this means. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, what that means for me is fruitful labor. What that means is, is that I can continue to work. And I do not know which of these I prefer. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, living and dying. My desire, of course, is to depart and to be with Christ. For that's far better. But to remain in the flesh, well, that's more necessary for you. Dying means I get to live on and on and on with Christ. Living means that I get to live with you, the ones who Christ loves. And because it seems more necessary to encourage you in this moment, Paul says, well, I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith. Paul says, I want to live not because this is where life is found. I want to live because that, I can continue, that way I can continue to help you find joy 
If I live, I can make sure to communicate with all the passion and all the, all the, the brilliant uh, rhetoric in the world, the joy that you can have in Christ. Even in the face of death, you can have this joy. And Paul is not, in this moment, Paul's not only convinced for others, he's living this truth for himself. He's walking every single day in this reality because he has found this sort of joy even in the context of his suffering. He's living it every day because he knows where real joy lies. He's discovered a truth that I want us all to walk away with today. And that is that in, my, in life's most toughest moments, or in life's toughest moments, joy is not discovered in our finding life instead of death. Joy is found when we embrace life in death. The way that you can shift the reality around you, living in this life or death culture, is to remember the life that you can find even in the face of death. Your joy is not found in the moments of life instead of death. It's not your good moments outweighing your bad moments in that way. It's not living life on the mountain peaks instead of always cycling through the valleys. It's not a string of good fortune that could come to you time and time again or good luck that comes to you in moments like that. True and abiding joy that we all want, that we all need, is found in the one who calls life out of death. The one who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. The one who continues to stand beside our Heavenly Father, interceding for us day after day. The only one who has ever faced death down. And reigns victorious. That's where your joy is found. That's where your joy is found in the midst of all of these, these circumstances that we, that, we lie, that we are surrounded with right now. And at the core of this, what I want to suggest in really simple terms, is this is just a shift of perspective. Right now, now, you don't have to be a follower of Christ to sort of take in what I'm saying about this. Because perspective and a shift in perspective can apply to a lot of us. And let me just say a word about this. Perspective itself the shifting of perspective, is sort of a tool that human beings can use to help us escape our perceived prisons. We can have a shift in perspective. I can see the world differently. I can understand it. And you might, might look at the world from another per person's perspective, and that can open up a new path of understanding. Right? It spans our worlds out. I said at the beginning, when we focus on ourselves, our world shrinks. When we shift our perspective, it doesn't matter who you are, you can grow your world. Your world can become larger and larger. And the things of this world might appear to be big, but when you get a new perspective, they shrink in the context of that larger world. But no matter where you are, no matter what background you are, or what, what faith you have in your life, fresh perspective always expands our capacity for joy by expanding our world. And like I said, this, this level of perspective, it's important for our joy no matter where you are in life. You, you can gain that sort of perspective just by listening and, and tuning in to others around you. And I, I've discovered that listening is, in fact, our first step in experiencing joy. If we just listen to others in our midst, if we learn how to listen a little bit better, we would, we would see that. I've, I've talked about this in times past, that our greatest need right now in the world we're living in is to listen to one another more because it starts to grow that perspective. Uh, I don't have it, you know, I always, my wife and I always joke about this, you know, when you grow your perspective in the world, it's that I don't have it as bad as them syndrome, right? Well, at least I'm not them. At least I don't have that going on. I'm better than that. I have a better life than that. And, and that's kind of what can happen in the context of growing our perspective. And growing our perspective through that type of listening doesn't matter your background. But Paul doesn't want you to stop there, and I don't want you to stop there. I think there's a deeper level of perspective that can be gained in the life of Christ. 
There's a perspective on the world that, that you can have that's greater than anything else, that's different than anyone else around you. Because when we, when we, gr- when we sort of merge ourselves with Christ's life in the way that Paul is talking about, we start to take on the perspective of the Creator. We start to take on the perspective of the one who created all things that are seen and unseen. And we start to live into that new perspective. You know, throughout the history of Christianity, there have been a lot of people who were imprisoned for their faith. Lots and lots and lots. Paul is not the only one. Paul gets brought up a lot because Paul writes letters. They're in our Bible and, and we get to see them. But, but all throughout the history of our faith, there have been people who have been imprisoned for their faith in Christ. And one of those people who's the most fam- one of the most famous prisoners in the 20th century, at least, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one who uh, vocally, boldly stood against Nazism in Germany in World War II. And in standing against Nazism in, in World War II, he also stood against the majority of Christians who were still in Germany, who would not speak out against it. And through a variety of circumstances, he actually ends up in jail. Now, throughout the centuries, as I said, there have been lots of people who end up in jail just the same way that he had. But as he's in jail, he also wrote letters. And in some of those letters, we start to see the same principles that Paul talked about coming up once again in his experience. You see, he believed, even from jail, that Christians, that you and I, those of us who follow Christ, should be the most joyous people in all the world. We should have more joy, more playfulness about us than anyone around because of our perspective on things, because of the shift in the perspective that we hold. But this perspective for Bonhoeffer, it's not cheap. It's not just happy and wishful thinking about how things could be. It's a perspective shift into the world as it is. You see, he would suggest that most of the world lives in sort of a misunderstanding of what's happening in the world. They live in a, in a make-believe world. But Christians have the ability to actually live into the world as it actually is in the reign of God. He believed that Christians should be the happiest people because they see things as they truly are. We're not just observers of God. We're participants in God's life and what God is doing in the world. And God invites us into that space where we get to share in God's life and we get to share in God's joy and God's goodness. And we're not looking for the kingdom of God to come as people of the spirit as people whose lives are are wrapped up in the divine life we're living as if the kingdom of God is with us now we get to see a part of that and experience it every single day and because of this joy for a Christian will never just be a byproduct of something we do you don't just get joy when you go to a concert you don't get, get joy when you listen to good music or have a great party like that's not where joy is found Joy is something that rests deep inside of our hearts as a result of this life with God. We don't need joyful circumstances around us to lead us to that. We have this deeper spiritual life in joy. And that's the perspective we need. That's the perspective that Paul actually proclaims. This new perspective that Paul had found that he shared with other people. This new perspective on life in the midst of death. It helps us see things as they really are. This new perspective on life in the midst of death, it provides us with a different set of rules for how you and I can engage in the world, a different perception of what's taking place in the world, of what is actually real and what is actually artificial. And I think this is what's most lacking, perhaps, in modern folks, in in modern forms of Christianity. 
We want the positive experience that affirms and confirms our Christian life. We want to, all the blessings to kind of go along with it. But the Christian walk directs us towards a new experience of life, an experience where the question is not, do I have life or death? But the question is, where can I find life in death? Where can I experience the goodness of God even in darkest of circumstances? And if I'm honest, that's what I want for you today. That's what I want for us today. I don't want it to just be lip service. I want us to be the people of joy that we are promised to be. I know the circumstances of our world are heavy. I realize that. But in that context, as people of faith, we still can rise as people of joy who can affirm the goodness of God around us and the goodness of God that calls us home. And that's where we are today. But it can only come as we ground our life in God's life. It can only come to us in those moments as we have placed ourselves deeply in the palm of God, resting in his mercy and grace, absorbing his life into our eye, into ours. And in that moment, we can rise above our circumstances. I know all of our circumstances are different this morning. I realize that. I realize there are some who are here who are grieving and who feel the weight of that grief. There are some of you who've been battling with sickness and your body is still weak in that moment. It's heavy. It's hard to move. There's some of you who have the weight of the world when it comes to your job and preserving that standard of living that you have, and it's heavy, and it's hard, and I get that. But in the context of all of these circumstances, God wants to give us a new perspective. God wants to enable you and me to have a joy that would empower us to step into those circumstances and to experience a fruitful life, to experience it in such a way that, like Paul, you could share that with others in your midst. You could share with others around you the joy that you hold. You can't explain it, but you know you can't let it go. As I used to say in the old Pentecostal churches that I grew up in, the world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. This is the, this is the joy that I want for you. And as we close with this song this morning, I just will pray. I'm going to open with a closing prayer. But I want your hearts and minds to be directed in prayer towards God that he might open up those spaces of life in the midst of whatever death is around you. Whatever death that you're facing and that can, you continue to face, let your prayer towards God be today. God, fill my heart with the joy of the Lord. Fill my heart with the joy that can only come through your spirit. And let me find life in the midst of death. Would you pray with me? Almighty Father, creator of all things, we come to you this morning recognizing the weight of the world. It's not something that I, I want to push aside. I, I do want us to feel it. I want it to rest on our shoulders. I want us to, to see what is there. Embrace it in the same way that you embrace the weight of this world. But God, in the midst of that weight, in the midst of that heaviness, that dread, will you start, start doing a work of joy in our lives? 
start filling our hearts and our spirits up with the joy of the Lord. It might be unexplainable. We may not be able to understand it completely or sort of put our finger on where it comes from. But God, I just ask that you would fill us up to overflowing with that form of joy today. We could walk into life's heaviest circumstances, different, changed, renewed, not by anything that we've done, but by your grace and mercy, which is new to us every day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Would you stand as we sing this song?